Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on how our Neanderthal ancestors' will to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind, body, and soul. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock thousands of years to discuss all aspects of our Neanderthal ancestors. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Welcome, 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 my cave dwellers. Thank you for joining me on this next episode of the Neanderthal Mind. Today we talk with Dr. Hogan Shero. And to start, I want to send out a huge thank you to Dr. Shero for joining me on the Neanderthal Mind podcast. And before we start, here's a little information about Dr. Shero. Dr. Hogan Shero is a Fulbright scholar and has a PhD in evolutionary anthropology from Yale University. He has studied the behavior and ecology of humans and other animals on three different continents, specializing in the evolution of political behavior, tribalism, leadership, and aggression. Some of his recent writings focus on the evolutionary origins of the Texas and Taliban attempts to control women and the existence and danger of the cult of Trump. Hogan now consults for individuals, organizations, and campaigns as owner of You Evolving LLC. The website is www.u-evolving.com. In this episode, Dr. Shero and I get into his business and podcast called You Evolving. Dr. Shero addresses when scientists talk about the evolutionary reason for a behavior, they are not assigning merit to that behavior or condoning it. They are simply finding the source of it. It is up to us as individuals and as groups and societies to determine what is morally acceptable and hold individuals to those standards. That is a direct quote from Dr. Shero. We also discuss what Dr. Shero thinks is the best trait we inherited from our Neanderthal or early human ancestors, as well as what his studying of primates insinuate about male dominance in relationships, and so much more. I absolutely enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Shero, as I know my cave dweller community will enjoy as well. And of course, all of Dr. Shero's links will be included in the show notes. As I always say, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I will see you on the flip side, cave dwellers. Hello, Mr. Shero. Hi, how you doing? Very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay. <laughs> Having some connection issues, but oh, that's okay. so far it's holding up. We'll work through it. It's all good. Um, just uh, if you want to tell, tell my cave dweller community a little about yourself. Sure. Um, I was actually, I was raised here in Oregon. And uh, when I was um, eight years old, I decided I was going to study primates in the wild. And so I stayed on that track all through college and grad school and finished up getting a PhD in anthropology and evolutionary anthropology focused on uh, primate and human evolution and behavior and uh, taught for Oh, about seven years at Ohio University um, and then got really burned out on academia and got really kind of tired of spinning my wheels in faculty meetings that weren't going anywhere um, and it just wasn't the right fit and so uh, 
loaded up the family and moved back to the West Coast and did a lecture tour and have since been writing quite a bit on human behavior and um, doing some studies. And so now I'm an independent consultant and uh, consult for nonprofits in the area as well as do uh, political campaigns, kind of helping people um, cut through the bull and deliver powerful messages and uh, all kind of using that, that background and training that I got in grad school just in a completely different way than what I planned. I know one of your, I guess you can call it one of your babies, is called You Evolving? Yeah, that's my uh, consultant company, um, You Evolving, and it's uh, just you-evolving.com on the web, and um, I do, like I said, I consult for organizations, mostly nonprofits, but do campaign work. And then uh, I, I, I consult for individuals too, like folks who want to become more effective leaders in their organizations, things like that. You mentioned something about studying everything from humans to grizzly bears to chimpanzees. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty, well, I want to say pretty broad spectrum, but I mean, I guess in the realm of things outside of grizzly bears, it's not that, <laughs> it's not that wide, I guess. Yeah, I stayed, I stayed mostly with large mammals, but, um, you know, as a kid growing up in Oregon, when I said I want to be a primatologist, my teachers and counselors at my schools didn't even know what that was. <laughs> and so I took every opportunity I could, you know, when I was an undergrad, I studied um, semi-captive dog behavior. They were in these big runs and we'd take them out and do trials with them. Uh, and then took off on a grizzly bear and gray wolf study over the summer one summer just so I could get some field experience collecting data out in the field and, and dealing with life in the field. Um, and then I uh, was fortunate enough to get a, an internship with the Cheetah Conservation Fund down in Namibia in Southern Africa when I was working on my first master's. And so took off and did that. And while I was there, got to study the baboons in the area and do a bunch of work in the schools and um, uh, as well as doing direct stuff with the cheetahs. And, you know, that just kind of broadened my, my perspective. So um, while I was studying and, and working on my dissertation and doing the good sort of, the good grad student uh, work, I also led a few safaris and, um, you know, became a, a little bit of a, um, I would call myself a, a well-versed novice in African animals. Um, and, and yeah, it was, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's, I've got a chance, you know, did a Fulbright in Indonesia where I studied gibbons. And so just got a chance to, to travel the world in a different way than a lot of people do who come from a small town um, and took every opportunity I could and worked my butt off to, to get those opportunities. You know, I wanted to ask you, and I've never asked the, my uh, guests before, what, what does that Fulbright mean? Fulbright scholar, what does that mean? For my own knowledge, I have no clue. <laughs> sure. Um, so the, the Fulbright is a, a U.S. government awarded um scholarly award so you you apply for it you go through kind of a rigorous process where you have to write essays and then get interviewed by former Fulbright scholars and basically what it is is if they determine that you are that you meet high enough academic standards that you're and and probably as importantly that you'll be a good representative of the U.S. going abroad then you get selected to go and sometimes you get the country of your choice. Uh, I was fortunate. I had a specific project that I wanted to do and not a lot of people want to go to Indonesia for their Fulbright. Um, I actually, I actually showed up there. I think we got there about six weeks after the fall of Saharto. Um, and we actually were, uh, were advised that if we were out on the streets and things started to get weird to pretend we were Canadian. Um, 
because nobody has a problem with Canadians, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's just a, it's an academically oriented scholarship that sends you overseas for an entire year to live in a different country um, and do typically an academic project. Very good. Yeah, I was always wondering what that was, and I always forgot to ask because there was other questions, And but I had that one written down to ask you, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, one of your, uh, in, in uh, some of your things online, you, you, you were, so it was in Africa or Indonesia that you were charged by elephants? Oh, Africa. <laughs> um, the, the, the big elephants. Uh, oh. Yeah, the, the savannah elephants. Um, that live actually in some of the forests in Africa. So there, there's two different species in Africa. There's the smaller forest elephant and then the big savanna elephant. And the savanna elephant actually travels through forests on its way between different grasslands. Um, and they can be pretty cantankerous. You know, you come across <laughs> them and they, they can have a bad attitude. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is, even if they don't, even if they're just moving, they're so large that if you if you get in their way, it's really easy to get injured without them trying to do anything to you. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, in my case, uh, each each time it was as much or more my fault than it was the elephants. Um, it was situations where you're walking through grasslands where the grass is 14 feet high and you're pushing it out of the way trying to find an, a new trail and typically those trails are elephant trails okay um and you know each time i happened to come across an elephant that i knew was up in front of me but i couldn't tell exactly where and it just so happened that it was moving towards me while i was moving towards it and um you know two different times came through the grass and pushed it aside and suddenly here's a huge set of ears <laughs> and a trunk goes up trumpeting and uh and i mean in that case you just turn around and run as fast as you can <laughs> hope they run slower i guess right <laughs> well and, and and i mean the thing you know it's not i wouldn't i wouldn't call it something to rely on but they don't really want to hurt you they have right. no reason to yeah i mean they're, it's not like an elephant's going to eat you so <laughs> um so you know typically they just want to do a little display and get you whatever you are gets you far away because also remember that this is an area where elephants are poached. So, um, you know, the last five years I was working in Uganda, we had seven elephants get poached inside of five years. Um, the previous 10 years before that zero poaching. So it was on the rise. Uh, and, and, you know, that's where they, that's where it's most dangerous. They get caught out in the open and people with high powered rifles, a lot of times, assault rifles um ak-47s that have been shipped in in the black market and and given to people specifically to to collect ivory uh you know they get they get caught by humans that have those and that's a bad day for the elephant so yeah. i don't blame them one bit when they you know when they come across the human of scare it away get it away as fast as i can yeah, that's that's under then that's a shame to watch because you know I just I'm sure like everyone else I I've watched those uh, uh, documentaries and everything about that the rhinos and it's just there, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of amazing work to protect them definitely you know it's a it's a shame to see that that still goes on unfortunately yeah it is well and and I think one of the worst parts of it is. I mean, I think, I think one, you have, you know, people who are collecting the ivory for all sorts of reasons that, that don't have any, any basis in reality of, of medicinal purposes or things like that, or just simply as an ornament, um, which is just as bad in my mind. But one of the worst things is, you know, they'll take one of these huge bull elephants with great tusks, they chop the tusks off, and they just leave the entire body. And so while, yes, there are scavengers of all sorts of levels in the forest that, that feed off that body, that's a lot of meat that is not being utilized that, you know, you're in an area where people are starving. And so just that kind of trade for, for money makes me even angrier. Yeah. Um, 
I agree. <laughs> so you, you talk about how you, you know, you got, uh, you knew at the age of eight that that's the direction you wanted to go. What was it that, that led you? I mean, what, what happened that you, you just wanted to do that? <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a, a story um, to it, of course. And it's a pretty common one among people around my age. Um, when I was eight years old, my mom gave me a National Geographic magazine with Jane Goodall on the cover. And I poured through that magazine over and over. I mean, I probably wore the pages out reading that article over and over. And I told my parents, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And, and, you know, at eight, my parents said, sure. Last week, you were going to be a fireman and before that, a doctor. And, <laughs> Um, you know, and I was like, no, that's what I'm going to do. And, and I just stuck to it. Um, and it's amazing. I, since I, since I've been in this field, I've met probably a half a dozen people who have a similar story, you know, saw a Jane Goodall documentary. My parents gave me a Jane Goodall book. Um, you know, I got to see her speak and I was like, Oh, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and she has, She's been an amazing inspiration to an entire generation of scientists. Uh, just phenomenal. I've been fortunate to meet her a couple of times uh, in person. And yeah, she's, she's even more wonderful in person. It's, you sort of, she's one of those people where you go, what's wrong with you, really? There's got to be something somewhere. Um, you know, just, just genuinely good, good, good-hearted and a good scientist and uh, you know, an incredibly strong woman. I have daughters and I love that they, they consider her one of their heroes. Um, yeah, she's, she's fantastic. I figured there had to be a story to, to want to do it that, that young, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. And obviously that led you to your anthropology and everything. So what, uh, what I guess is the main focus of an evolutionary anthropologist? So what is it that uh, you mostly focus on? <sighs> Yeah. How long, them, huh? how long do you have for this podcast? <laughs> hey, as long as you want. But <laughs> um, Because the, the thing about evolutionary anthropology and, you know, it, it, it's sometimes called biological anthropology, used to be called physical anthropology. Um, we've gotten away from that. That title, that title is not really accurate in any way. Um, I use evolutionary anthropology because. So. In our, in our subfield of anthropology, you know, there are, anthropology is made up of these different subfields, the biggest one being the cultural anthropologists, the folks who, who go and, and live with other people for a year or to plus and, you know, learn all about them and, and their culture and then kind of report on it. Um, then you have your archaeologists, you're, uh, you know, typically dealing with physical remains, um, Usually, usually a lot of things like home sites and things like that. Uh, and they, they tell us a ton about our prehistory and, and really fill in a lot of the gaps and do, and you know, I, I've been fortunate to have some good friends that are archeologists to do some amazing work. Um, and same with cultural anthropologists. And then uh, there's kind of a little subset, the linguistic anthropologists, and they study languages and, and the evolution of language and, um, and the development of those over time. And then there are the, the biological or evolutionary anthropologists. And um, we are the most, we have, I would say within us, the most varied group because it's everything from forensic anthropology. Um, so, you know, like, uh, um, even though I, I didn't think this show was a very good depiction of it, um, like in Bones, that's a that's based on an actual forensic anthropologist. Um, <clears throat> and there are your folks that, you know, I, we used to do this in grad school. The cops would call us and say, hey, we got some bones out here and we need to need to determine if they're human or not. And we go out and for like 50 bucks a call, you go out and identify whether or not they're human and tells them if they have a crime, potential crime scene or if it's just somebody's goat that died out in, out in the field. Um, and uh, and so you got your forensic anthropologists, you've got human growth and development people who are studying everything from hormones to literally how ch children grow and develop. You've got your primatologists, um, 
and and then you've got kind of the rock stars the the paleoanthropologists those those human evolution folks and the the folks who actually study what this show is named after neanderthals <laughs> as well as lots of other species um and i like to call them the rock stars because they're the ones that they it takes them forever to get that kind of one hit but when they get yeah. that one hit they're you know they're on the cover of time um sure. and and i i think rightfully so you know if you find something that's 5.5 million years old and and looks like it could be an ancestor for humans that's pretty awesome stuff um but the thing that ties all of those those different fields of study together is that we all look at humans from through an evolutionary lens so we're all we're all looking at the evolution of humans and our relatives and that's why i call it evolutionary anthropology very good <laughs> i appreciate that now the one thing that you uh wanted to share with was um and the, the way you wrote it was when scientists talk about the evolutionary reason for a behavior, uh, they're not assigning merit to that behavior or condoning it. They're just simply finding the source of it. Um, it's up to us as uh, individuals and as groups and societies determine what is morally acceptable and hold individuals to those standards. So what, um, I don't know if you wanted to, if you could, or if you wanted to elaborate on that at all. Sure. Um, and this is, this is something that uh, is kind of hitting the news now. There, there's, there are a couple recent books that, that want to talk about our prehistoric minds and how we're, we're evolved to, to behave in certain ways. And there's lots of kind of, oh, this behavior happens because we evolved to do this and this and this. And first off, I want to say that that's incredibly difficult to determine. Sure. Um, a, a lot of those really are what I what I like to call time machine questions. Um, you know, unless unless you figured out a time machine and can go back and watch what's going on, it's really it's going to be almost impossible in, in most situations to say this happens because of this. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I just I just finished writing a guest blog for for a gentleman here um, locally. And he, he gets a pretty good distribution on it. And he asked me to, to write something on um, the, the recent uh, laws in Texas and, and the attempts to, by what, what are male administrations to kind of control female behavior. And, and he said, because that sounds a lot like what a lot of male primates do. And I said, yeah, it does. But there's all sorts of cultural layers there. And so I laid out a, a scenario saying this could be one of the reasons, but I, I wouldn't say this happens because of this, this, and this. Um, so that's the first thing. It's really difficult to, to do that. And then I think when, when, when scientists are trying to find the evolutionary roots of a behavior, they really are just genuinely trying to find out okay, how did that behavior come about as a regular practice by any species? You know, so for example, chimpanzees that I've, I've spent, I've been fortunate enough to spend over, what, 3,500 hours in the field with them now, um, something like that. Uh, they, you know, males get together in groups and defend territories. Okay, well, that's a really interesting behavior for these individual males to take on and it's an interesting question just how that came about um now there are folks who would watch them go about these behaviors and on those when they patrol these territories if they find neighbors if they find other chimps they attack them they try to kill them if they can they isolate them and if they're if they're males they isolate them and kill them if they can they'll they'll kill infants from other communities and there are people who put a value judgment on that and say, oh, look at that. That's so terrible. But that's not what the scientists researching them are trying to do. Um, and so in fairness, if you're trying to study human behavior, you want to go about it the same way. You, you want to you try and get at what's the source of this behavior. Is it something that is just, you know, part of the culture and there is no evolutionary reason for it? That doesn't mean that it's, again, there's no value on it. That doesn't mean it's a better or 
or worse behavior or lesser behavior or or anything like that it just means that you're getting to the source of it um and i think too often it's just easy for us to because we are maybe impacted by these behaviors it's it i would say it's easy for us to identify with them and therefore hard for us to be objective about them and say oh well you know humans humans everywhere around the world males kill other males at higher rates than any other demographic you know well why is that um, is it just is it just because in all those cultures males happen to be more aggressive or is it or is there something deeper there and that's what that's what we're interested in is is there something deeper there of course there's always the question on you know what caused the demise of our neanderthal cousins or ancestors would you say integration or degradation in a sense you know did we <laughs> integrate them or did we destroy them what what would you just your opinion obviously yeah um and and it's something that i that i've looked at a few times and um and and honestly this is one of those where uh, this is one of those that's a, a beautiful case of how science works, um, because just in my time studying this, this particular subject and studying evolutionary anthropology, the agreed upon understanding has changed. So because we've gotten more data. So we used to think that we completely replaced Neanderthals, that we, you know, that uh, modern humans everywhere they went in. They basically probably outcompeted them. Is uh, you know there were those folks who who were like, oh, it was open warfare, and they 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 wiped them out. Maybe in some cases, in other cases, humans were probably just more efficient at gathering food, spent less energy doing that. Um, you know, had a much wider diet that they could get food from, so their kids survived at higher rates, and over time replace that was the that was the thinking back then um since then thanks to you know beginning with Stevante Pabo at, at the Max Planck Institute um a br brilliant geneticist and his team and now dozens of teams since then we now know that it's much much more complicated and muddier than that um and and I'll I'll say this too I think the reality is in most cases it is it is muddled and muddy and and messy and that's how biology typically is there are very few times where oh it's just really simple modern humans moved in and neanderthals couldn't compete and died out um now we know oh no there was some interbreeding uh there and probably for a long period of time um there almost certainly were cases where there was some sort of I don't, I don't know if I want to use the term war because that's got special connotations to it, but where there were conflicts that, that were deadly, um, <clears throat> there probably were situations where they lived side by side for years. You know, they just figured out not to go over that hill and mess with those other, those other human looking things. Um, and, and so I think we probably have a mixture of all of that. Uh, but I think the thing that that probably in my opinion that probably holds true is that the creativity of, of humans of homo sapiens of our species in all all sorts of ways and being able to plan for the future and being able to see resources where other uh hominins our our relatives couldn't see them you know so things like exploiting shorelines and um, and understanding that bird's eggs were as good as catching the bird and, you know, things like that. Um, I think I think all of that kind of plays into this where, yeah, modern humans probably were more adaptive. I mean, they certainly were more adaptive than Neanderthals. Neanderthals were, were almost a niche species, you know, that was built for a glacial environment that, uh, that really, and, and even though we have Neanderthal remains that are 
outside of that realm. They're the fringe populations. Um, the core of Neanderthals were, they were an ice age population. And so, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's hard to say one or the other. I think it's almost certainly a combination of you get this kind of interbreeding and then at the same time, but the ones, and you know, you can, you can think of it in this way. If you've got successful interbreeding going both directions, so meaning that if it's a male Neanderthal and a female human, it's a success. If it's a uh, male human and a female Neanderthal, it's a success. If the babies being raised by modern humans are surviving at higher rates, then even the ones that are, that are inter, interbreeding between humans and Neanderthals are surviving at higher rates in those human populations. And so they're, they're picking up the human, the human traits um, as well as carrying the genes. And so I think, I think probably you got a, a mix there. Um, I've, often, I've often wondered what it would be like if the Geico commercials were real um, and Neanderthals were still hanging around. Uh, you know, it, it, it'd be a whole different world, that's for sure. Yeah, it definitely would be. You know, even to this day, with all the discoveries, you know, of what our Neander—well, you say Neanderthal, Neanderthal—is it? Does it matter to you in Tallerthal? I, I don't. I don't care. It's just the. Okay. Um, I it's how I was trained because of the That's German fine. pronunciation. Um, you know, it's like there's just there still is, and I think it's starting to wane a little bit. But there's always been a stereotype of you know the Neanderthals. Neanderthals were just lugheads, just complete idiots that didn't know anything about surviving and and i i can't I, like to for the life of me i can't figure out why first of all we thought that because they survived for hundreds of thousands of years but why do we still put them in a box you know as to well they weren't that intelligent you know like to me if we would if if the you know the researchers and everybody would would open their mind a little more saying well they're you know they're not as dumb as we thought they were do you okay? So I guess a couple parts. Do you think there would be more discoveries if we took the Neanderthal out of that box and said, "Well, they were pretty smart. Let's start looking at, you know, other tall tale signs that they were very intelligent." Yeah. So so let me let me start that by saying that all I I know several folks who focus on Neanderthals as as their main court, uh, source of study and. I don't know a single current Neanderthal researcher who doesn't view them as a complex, intelligent species. Um, and, and so just, and, but, it, but it's not something that's popularized. It's something among researchers that they, that, that is kind of understood. Um, and when I, when I taught uh, at the university, I actually did a whole two hour lecture on this, on, the evolution of Neanderthals in our modern view of them, um, and start out with there's a there, there's a just a fantastically horrible nineteen like fifties horror film called The Neanderthal Man. Um, if you if you haven't had a chance to watch it, watch it this this Halloween season. Okay. You won't regret it. Um, and it's one of those kind of you know classic. 50s horror where guy gets exposed to to neanderthal blood or something you know something uh triggers his inner neanderthal to come out um and and just you know it's, it's basically the same as wolf werewolf stories or anything yeah, okay. else. All right. um but it's it's hilarious you know it's because the movie poster is all about his primitive desires and all this stuff and and I think that that gets at the heart of what happened with Neanderthals. So, you know, first Neanderthal found in 1856, um, three years before Darwin published The Origin of, of Species. And it was the, the first human relative found as well. And when that skull was brought out and people saw that low brow with those real prominent ridges, no chin um they they thought this thing is so different than us so primitive compared to, to modern humans 
And so that started that bias where it was this, it's, you know, it was the only one in existence. I mean, if, if, if it had been the other way around and folks had found some of the early hominin stuff and then Neanderthals, I think our, I think our popularized view of them would be completely different. People would be talking about how complex they were and what big brains they had. Um, but instead it was, oh, it's so primitive compared to humans, you know, this thing. And, and of course, right away, some of the first artist renditions were of them hunched over, right? They couldn't stand up fully and be like a good modern, modern uh, man and stand upright, um, you know, put the club in their hand, living in a cave, uh, kind of, and, and, and the fact that the first Neanderthal was found in the Neander Valley in a cave site uh, just compounds that but it, it all of that to a victorian english speaking person which is the center of of human studies at that time all of that sounds like you know the most primitive possible life you can have and so that really laid that groundwork and it took over a century to break out of that um of people because you're right scientists went in with their own biases and, and were limited in what they were looking for for a long time. And then researchers started finding things like, oh, possible p potential um, intentional burials at Neanderthal sites. Uh, you know, the evidence of potential care for one another where you have an individual that fractured their leg all the way through there's no way that person is walking on that leg yet it calcified and they survived for years afterwards. Yeah. Somebody had to bring them food. Right. Um, you know, and, and so all sorts of evidence of that. Um, <clears throat> and over the years, our view of Neanderthals has, has changed. Um, and, you know, I jokingly brought up the Geico commercials, mm -hmm. but there's a great, example of pop culture of our view of neanderthals changing it's yeah. so easy a caveman can do it insults the guy yeah <clears throat> where you know and he's and he's working a complex job or he's ordering duck all orange and they're saying it's so easy a caveman can do it and so there's our view has changed over time as the science has changed and now we have you know pretty clear evidence of all sorts of everything from um, a pretty complex toolkit. I mean, that was the other thing is that people used to think their toolkits were really simple. Right. And now we, now we know that they were, you know, six to eight times more complex than the hominin before them. So, so yeah, we've got this and it has changed over time. And um, there's a, there's a great, a great image from a time life series of, the Neanderthal male coming out of the cave with this dragging his club. And there's like a woolly rhino in the background. And, you know, it looks like the males are going to go off and hunt. And the only, the only female in the picture is this old looking woman who looks like could be their mom or something. And it's like three males that are going to, you know, going to go kill a woolly rhino. And years later, someone did a modern version of that with all the interpretations that have happened of, of Neanderthal culture since then. And the central figure is a woman and she's got a baby hanging on her and she's explaining something to the rest of the group. Um, and the, the most prominent male is butchering an animal while he's also got a kid hanging on him. And it's a much more egalitarian, almost female focused uh, view and I think that that's probably romanticized as well, right? It's you're, you've kind of like, I think of things as the pendulum swinging back and forth and it swung way too far to one side. Now it's swung way too far to the other and it needs to settle in the middle. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we're getting at. And I think a lot of the researchers are already there. They're seeing, okay, the, you know, the Neanderthals are, are really these complex, 
lived in these complex groups. They had far more varied uh, cultures than what we what we would think of them as having. And we now know that our ancestors interbred with them, so they couldn't have been that primitive. <laughs> right. You know, because <laughs> yeah. our ancestors saw them as potential mates. So, <laughs> um, so I, I think I think we're getting there, but but you, it is a, it's one of those unfortunate things in in anthropology where, you know, we had this stuck in our heads for so long about the quintessential caveman is what I what I like to refer to them as, and you know this idea of these brutes that are kind of barely scratching out an existence almost as if they were waiting for modern humans to come along so they could die out because they just weren't going to make it. Um, and that's just so far off from, you know, what, what was really going on. Yeah. So there's a couple things here. So let, let's, let's take a step back. So, uh, studying the chimpanzees and everything. A question if, if you want to answer what theories of evolution do you believe then i know there's some that say we were evolved from you know the monkeys or whatever what have you you know what so what what kind of uh what what would your opinion be on evolution okay um well i mean first and foremost i think it's very clear to even your most sort of skeptical scientist uh bio, biologist that evolution is just fact it it is it is what happens to populations as they move through time on this planet um and that and that really gets at the core of the simplest kind of heart of evolution is that evolution is just change in allele frequencies or gene types um in populations over time and so every population changes. And if you have enough time, those populations are going to change drastically. Or if you have really strong selective pressures, they're going to change drastically. So, you know, that, that time can be shortened with an intensity of selection. Um, but yeah, that, that's the first, the first thing. Um, and, and, you know, I, I like to think of that as, in my mind, that's a really reassuring thing because we now understand a core part of how nature works. So when you, you know, when you see swallows nests in the spring and babies who have been pushed out and before they were ready to fly, you, if you understand evolution, you understand that those parents produced more offspring as a buffer because some babies weren't going to make it. Okay. Um, and so, so, you know, to me, it's a, it's kind of a, a very reassuring thing of understanding how nature works. Um, again, I, I moved through my life in, in with this knowledge of not putting any value judgments on those things. Like, you know, those babies, the baby swallows, I just referred to, most of them are pushed out by their own siblings in what, what is called siblicide. And, you know, I don't think, boy, that's a, that's a really mean big brother or big sister. Um, <clears throat> that's just how the competition works. Yeah. Uh, in, our, in our case, it's very clear from the evidence we have that humans, modern humans, evolved from earlier ape ancestors, not monkeys. Monkeys are actually a younger lineage than the apes are. Um, the modern day monkeys are and uh and so and we didn't evolve from any of the existing apes we evolved from an extinct ape species and those existing apes have gone on their own evolutionary trail so they've 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 gone down their own evolutionary path and none of them is what we evolved from um some of them make a better kind of proxy model than others but none of them are, are 100% what we evolved from. Um, and, and then the other part is that humans are still evolving. So there's no endpoint in evolution. It's, it, again, it's just how populations change to, 
um, to their environments over time. And so humans are still evolving. You know, we're, uh, we have, we have some instances of that, uh, in almost kind of real time. Uh, we're probably seeing one of those strong selective pressures with the COVID situation. Um, considering it's a worldwide impact on human populations. Uh, but that's, that's also an important thing, I think, for people to remember because it means that our population is changing. There's no sort of, oh, we got to the finish line and we're done because <laughs> um, there is no finish line. Yeah. Awesome. That was awesome. Loved it. Thank you very much. So just a couple more questions here. I don't, I don't know how much longer you have, or if, if, if you don't have any more time, that's fine. Uh, I just had two more things I wanted to ask, but it's up to you. Oh, no, fire away. We're good. So one of the, um, okay, let's go with, um, and you may not be able to answer it, and it's okay. What, what do you think would be the best trait that we inherited from our Neanderthal cousins or early human ancestors? It's a heck of a so, question. I've never asked it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's, it's important for us to remember that we, we, we did get some traits from Neanderthals, probably nothing that is like, you know, going to dominate the human population, given the percentage of Neanderthal genes that are, that are in different human populations. Um, but I would say from our early ancestors, earlier ancestors, uh, probably the most important thing goes back to that behavioral flexibility, you know, of humans being able to, I mean, if you think about humans today, we are, and this is even pre jet airlines, you know, jet airplanes and everything else. We are on every single continent naturally, except Antarctica. And you know, there's, I mean, talk about a niche situation. It's only a few species that can survive in Antarctica right. with, without special, uh, special accommodations. And we're definitely not one of those, but we're on every, every continent. And that's, that's not by mistake. That's not by, um, you know, oh, well, humans took a right turn when they meant to turn left and they ended up in Asia. Um, that from the population expanding naturally because of our behavioral flexibility we've we've been able to occupy all of those continents and all of those different latitudes all those different you know we were just taught you and i were at the beginning of this we're just talking about which hemisphere we're in and what the mm -hmm. what the weather's like we've been able to go <clears throat> in all those different environmental conditions with only changing our behavior not changing our physical structure drastically. Now, yes, there are, you know, for example, the, the Maasai, sorry, dogs are barking in the background. That's okay. um, one, one, of the, one of the things that we've co-evolved with is our domesticated dogs when they domesticated <laughs> themselves. Um, but, you know, the, the Maasai in, in uh, East Africa are on average men are, I think, six foot two, six foot three. Um, and they're, they're very, they're very long and they're, they're very lean built. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with some Maasai folks and do a little bit of work with them. And they used to laugh at me all the time because I am not built for a tropical Savannah environment. Yeah. Um, and, and they would, and they would all laugh and say, Oh, you know, <laughs> you're, you're going to die out here. If you don't have, if you don't have a good hat and a lot of water, um, <laughs> And, uh, but then, you know, and then the, of course there are folks in, um, in Northern latitudes who have very relatively short appendages. Uh, <clears throat> and so we have some of that variation um, in population. So I don't, want it, I don't want it to seem like there hasn't been any kind of localized adaptation to, to populations, you know, high altitude, uh, high altitude populations with with their lung capacities expanded different different situations there but the biggest the biggest difference between those communities is how much clothes they wear 
It's when they decide to be exposed to the elements. It's when it's what what foods they eat that allow them. You know, if you're if you're in a northern latitude and you're eating an incredibly high fat diet that's allowing you to store energy and burn burn extra energy while you're getting through these cold times that's very different than the very lean lean and and largely plant-based diet that most of your tropical populations are on all of those things are, are changes that really we've done just with our culture just with our behavior and so if, you know if if we want to talk about the the most important thing it would be that relatively large brain and that behavioral flexibility um that that i think our ancestors must have had um to pass it down to us awesome <laughs> that's a good question i'm gonna have to, i'm gonna have to use that more often that was pretty good <laughs> i like the answer i appreciate yeah, that, that was yeah it was good that was a good one i like that one <laughs> So then let's, let's, uh, I guess, jump back a little further too with uh, now what in your opinion would be the most significant discovery uh, of all and of recent with our Neanderthal cousins or ancestors? Oh, wow. Um, now this is where my bias comes in because I'm a, I'm a, I really focus on really early hominin behavioral reconstructions when i when i look at human evolution so i like this stuff like five and a half six seven million years ago um and our and and so there's you know there's uh there's the classic in australopithecus afarensis and lucy um that i think was if you were to if you were to say this one is the most important lucy probably would would still be that just in the sense of She's, you know, three and a half, four feet tall, um, 75% complete skeleton that clearly showed this crazy little biped thing walking around on two legs that wasn't uh, an ape as we see them today and wasn't a human as we see them today. It was something else. Um, but recent stuff, I would say that the Artipithecus remains so that stretches our, our, our ancestry back another million uh, or another two million years to five and a half. Um, I think the oldest stuff they have is about 5.8 million years old. And there again, they've been able to do a reconstruction showing, you know, most of this thing that again is a, is a biped, but is a different biped than Lucy was. So Lucy, Lucy had a little more of a stride this thing was more of a waddler when it walked. Um, that that I think is is really significant. But then if you were to 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 want to talk about, see, this is why biological anthropology it's hard to pin things down because <laughs> there are so many different areas. Sure. Um, you know, you could you could talk about the what we talked about earlier about the muddling of that time period of humans humans evolving neanderthals evolving denisovans or whatever those were being around and all those populations kind of mixing with each other and you having this big kind of messy melting pot of hominins and we've got one species that emerged out of that that survived but therefore probably probably you know 50 plus thousand years probably closer to over a hundred thousand, you had these separate populations that when they came together, they could make babies. They could, you know, they they could they could interbreed. Um and they survived independently for for a long period of time. But now we've got this one population. So that that to me is really revolutionary. And then the last thing I would mention is this most recent stuff. The um I don't know if you saw the the pictures of the fossilized footprints yes yes you know um if if those dates check out quite honestly i'll, I'll be honest with you Twenty-one thousand years ago doesn't surprise anyone who has spent any time studying the uh peopling of the americas um because there's there's evidence along the uh the kelp highway um uh, which is what what they call off the pacific coast um the 
the kind of uh, those kelp regions that are really high in resources and things, people boating down those and living on places like the Channel Islands um, and, and that stretching back to maybe 18,000 years ago. Um, so 21,000 wouldn't shock anyone who has been studying it, but it pushes our that earliest agreed upon date way back. And I think for thinking about, especially with some of the issues around Native Americans today and you know their claims for ancestral homeland and things like that, it really impacts all of that. So I think I think that's gonna be a really interesting area for the next couple of years. I always, you know, that, that was awesome that, that they had discovered those footprints. And like, even with me, I always struggle with there, there had to be someone here before the Native Americans. I mean, there just had to be, you know, we, again, we were part of this big world that was being occupied by, you know, uh, uh, you know, our Neanderthals and our Homo sapiens. And I mean, there had to be, in, in my mind, it just seemed like there had to be lives here you know earlier than what we think <laughs> yeah well i i think i think there's there's kind of two separate parts there i think earlier than we think sure i think it's also hard for us to imagine i mean especially with north america how developed it is today um you know in the areas that, that you see i mean you know if you if you go where you're at if you if you just go north the ways and go to cleveland um you know that sprawling that sprawling rock and roll city. Uh, we'll see how the Browns end up doing this year. Um, <laughs> you you got I mean, just there and like you said, you're just west of Pittsburgh. I mean, I I, I spent a little time in Pittsburgh and you know it's not not the most sprawling city I've ever been in, but it's a re, it's a big city and mm-hmm. and to think of how developed those are, it's I think it's sometimes it's hard for us to imagine a time where humans weren't around um but also that's a really exciting um thought experiment to go on sometime of imagine north america with no homo sapiens on it and then when these people showed up because that that's that's almost certainly the case is is that you know you had a time where there weren't any any humans and then all this fauna that had evolved here gets exposed to this thing that you know has sticks that fly through the air and hurt a lot um (laughs) and fire to and fire to scare you away and to burn up your forests and things um it's yeah i mean it it definitely it happened it just is when is going to be the question yeah yeah it's going to be exciting to see and, and i you know i think finding those footprints again like we were talking earlier took their minds out of that box of you know well we were pretty sure this is when they arrived but now we have this evidence that it was a lot sooner than what we think so now you know it it, it does it, it's exciting that now that their minds are a little more open that, that there's probably going to be more discoveries you know so that's exciting to see absolutely and and again let me just say this really quickly it's uh it's it's again, another great example of, this is how science works. We used to think 12,000 years ago, Clovis Point, that was the earliest that humans were here. Then they found evidence, you know, we found the, like, well, our, our, the original running shoes in Oregon, uh, 11 to 12,000 year old sandals. And they're like, oh, well, that was a well-established home area. So had to be earlier than that. Then we found jewelry from 15,000. And now we found these footprints that may be 21,000 years old. And each time the new data required us to rethink the situation and expand our minds and say, okay, let's open up our minds to the possibility that what we thought was the case, now we've got new data and that's no longer the situation. And that's how science works. That's that's one of the biggest challenges I think we have with scientific experiments and, and research today is that people want that final answer, right? They want scientists to tell them, well, tell me exactly when it happened. Tell me exactly how it happened. 
that isn't how science works at all. Yeah. We, we say based on the data, this is the, what the evidence shows. And, and we are always ready as scientists to completely throw out everything that we knew when new data is presented to us. <laughs> It's it's uh, exciting times. It really is. And just the year that I've been doing this podcast, there's just been so many uh, new discoveries. And, and I'm so grateful that I, I got into it at the time that I you know wanted to get into <laughs> because I, I don't have any experience in Neanderthals or anthropology or none of that. It was just me wanting to learn about it. And I mean, it's just been fascinating. This, this, this year, past year journey, it's been very fascinating. So, Well, let me, I was going to ask you what got you into this because... <laughs> It's, it's an interesting, you know, um, it's an interesting area for someone to dive into. And I, I gotta, I gotta commend you in that, in that regard, because I think there are a lot of people that, you know, once they, once they hit 30, they stop learning. And, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's unfortunate because, you know, what, what we were just talking about when you asked me the most significant thing we we inherited from our ancestors, and I said our behavioral flexibility, that creativity, that comes from learning new things. Yeah. And so it's it's ironic that there are a lot of people out there who have basically just shut the door on what is one of the essential things that makes us human. Yeah. And and you've gone just the opposite. You're like, I want to know about this. So I'm gonna start a, a forum. Where I can bring people in and find out. That's awesome. So, yeah, it was, well done, man. It, it was definitely a deep dive. I just, like, because I was always about mindfulness and I was, you know, my mom, I was a mama's boy and she was always a, a people watcher, you know, just watching. So I developed this watching people and, and then it's just like, well, why did that person just do that? Or why did they react that way? And, you know, I heard someone say on, on a, a podcast one time that, you know, a, a lot of, what we think or feel was because of our Neanderthal ancestors or cousins. And I thought, well, you know what, if that's the route, then that's the route I'm going to go. Cause I want to know why we act like we do. So <laughs> I just figured I'd take a, take a leap in and, and learn along the way. So <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to get to the end of this, Dr. Cheryl, first off, I, I absolutely appreciate you being willing to come on and, and talk to someone who has no, no knowledge whatsoever about Neanderthals and, and teach me quite a few things. I, I, I greatly appreciate that. And I know my uh, cave dweller community appreciates everything you, uh, everything you gave us today. But before we go, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you would like to talk about? The last thing I, I would want to mention is that there are a couple of, of books out there today brand new stuff that they really claim to oh we can help you solve your modern day problems by looking at your at things through a prehistoric lens you know the way your ancestors would have um i put those into the same category as i put something like the paleo diet <laughs> these claims that that all of our ancestors acted a certain way or ate a certain thing or this is how you have to do it if you want to you know the the reality in the paleo diet is it probably was a lot of scavenged meat a ton of plant material and then a bunch of bugs mixed in there um and so you know the the idea that the paleo diet is well i'm gonna go eat moose that's barely cooked and i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna do that it it's all it's all fantasy and and um, so I would just say to, to the cave dwellers, right, keep, <laughs> yes. a, keep a skeptical mind when you come across these things, because it, it can be really exciting to someone who's really curious about this, but, you know, hasn't had the opportunity to study it. Um, oh, look, this book has all the, all the answers in it. And no, they don't. They're, <laughs> They're really, they're really expressing their opinions. Yeah. Some are better than others and they're all designed to make money off of, off of selling the book and the book and the book tour. Um, and that's no fault to the, to the authors, you know, that's, that's a, that's a perfectly legitimate route to go is I'm going to write a popular science book. Um, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to get the proceeds off of it. Great. Awesome. Um, 
my my concern with those always is when people think that oh these guys they've got a they've got you know doctor in front of their name or phd behind their name and they're saying that this is how it happened so that must be the case um no just just keep your skeptical mind and when something doesn't when something kind of seems weird look into it you know just and and honestly scholar.google.com is a great place for folks to just be able to jump on and see did, did has anyone written a paper about this is there a, a peer reviewed scientific study um and yeah that's that's the last little thing that i i throw out there awesome now and i want to thank you this you has know, been fun <laughs> yeah absolutely now, are, now do you have any books or any papers you want to you want to promote or anything um i'm i'm I've got a book in the works right now that's oh, okay. um, about about cults and and how cults evolve and why they evolve and why they persist. Um, but uh, and then you know through my website, the youevolving.com, um, I've got a I've got a blog that I do on psychology today that's linked through there. Uh, so I, I do a, a semi-regular blog for psychology today looking at human behavior and why we why we you know potential reasons why we do certain things um and uh so lots of lots of online writings um i've got a podcast as well it's just you evolving um and I'll, i'll send you the link to that uh but yeah um and you know if any of your listeners want to know more i'm always happy to answer emails and there's contact form through the website um so it's really easy yeah yeah i'll definitely uh, put all your uh, links and everything in the show notes so that they can get to them without a doubt but but again dr shero thank you so much it's been awesome it's been a fantastic conversation and man i i greatly appreciate it and look at any, any time in the future that if you have anything you want to come on and talk about send me an email and i'll get you on as soon as possible i appreciate it all right man thanks it's been fun all right, Dr. Sarah, have a good evening. Enjoy that beautiful evening that it looks like you're having right now. And uh, hopefully <laughs> we'll talk to you again in the future. All right, thanks. Thank you. Bye. Well, there you have it, Cave Dwellers. Another awesome guest with awesome information to share with the community. I know you've enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Sharrow because I have enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Sharrow. And why would you be listening if you didn't enjoy the education and information sharing that we all get on the Neanderthal Mind podcast? Thank you, Cave Dwellers, for joining me for another episode about our Neanderthal ancestors and cousins. And I hope you join me next episode for more enthralling and educational conversation with everybody's favorite Neanderthal. Until next time, cave dwellers. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And if you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast as much as we hope you have, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next episode, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget, leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.